Good morning. Welcome to Real Time with Ipelra, a podcast dedicated to HR topics in local government. I'm Megan Falera. And I'm Christina White. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are talking about effective communication in the age of social distancing. But before we get to that, I want to let our listeners know it is not too late to sign up for supervisor training the nationally recognized award-winning training that you have counted on for years. Supervisors or managers, you have sent your new supervisors, your um, seasoned supervisors to this training. Normally, it's a day-long training. This year, we are offering our training virtually with each module uh, available on different days, something you don't want to miss. Please go to our IPELRA website and sign up for that. We also have uh, a new webinar that is going to be out in October 27th, Collective Bargaining Trends, with uh, our advising attorney, Bob Smith. Uh, and before we get into the meat and potatoes of our show, we have Bob Smith with us today. Bob, good morning. How are you? I'm great, Megan. Thank you for inviting me to participate. Good to be with you and Christina. Thank you so much for being here. And listeners, I hate to say this, but wait. There's more. Just when you thought you couldn't get enough of the Smith, the Smith, Bob Smith, he, we have his daughter, Dr. Stephanie Smith, with us as well. Stephanie is an assistant professor of communication at Virginia Tech. Dr. Smith, good morning. How are you today? Hi, good morning. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, we are so excited. This is the first time in the history of the podcast that we have had four people, two guests, um, again, I'm picturing like a virtual teeter-totter here with the legal expertise of Bob Smith on one side and the communication expertise of his daughter, Dr. Stephanie Smith, on the other side, here to give us this impactful message this morning on effective communication in social distancing. So thanks, guys. I really, I think this is going to be outstanding. Now more than ever, we need to stay connected and uh, in fact, that's even the reason that we decided to launch this podcast is because everyone's holed up uh, at home. We're not getting together. Um, we, we're moving to online to, do, to meet all of our needs and, and try and stay connected like we have in the past. Information is changing daily, even hourly at times. And as civil servants, we need to package and deliver these messages. Bob, you just recently presented to my board of trustees some social media tips for elected officials. What can you share with us about that presentation, and why is this issue so important? Thanks, Megan. Well, one of the most important things for an elected official to remember is that if they want their social media account to remain personal, they should not use it for official purposes. If they choose to use their personal social media account for official purposes, all sorts of new, there are many legal ramifications to that. Um, if I could just amplify that a little bit, um, I think we're all aware that President Donald Trump uses his Twitter account to talk about official business of the United States government, about his administration. I suspect this coming week he'll tweet about who he intends to nominate to the United States Supreme Court. I think he tweeted when he terminated the FBI director a while back. This was his personal Twitter account. He set it up in 2009 long before he became president. And there's a very interesting case decided by the Second District Court of Appeals, a very well-regarded court, where President Trump, as president, tried to block some people from commenting, interacting with him on his Twitter account. 
basically the president did not appreciate the fact that several people disagreed with his tweets. So rather than having those negative opinions appear on his Twitter account feed, he just blocked them, blocked the users. And the issue for the uh, appellate court was whether or not that violated the Bill of Rights, in particular, the First Amendment to the Constitution. And the court held that the First Amendment does not allow a public official who uses a social media account for all manner of official purposes to exclude persons from an otherwise open dialogue simply because they express views with which the public official disagrees. Fascinating case, and essentially they held that the president violated the First Amendment rights of the people whose negative comments he sought to block. It was a form of what we describe as viewpoint discrimination. And the same thing applies to state and local officials because as we know, the First Amendment applies to them as well by virtue of the 14th Amendment. Okay, and are we sure that the president is aware of the First Amendment? <laughs> I am not at all sure that he's aware, okay. but I, I would like to think so. Perhaps his advisors have let him know that that, that does apply to him as well. Perhaps. Oh, hopefully. So you talked about um, the, the, tri the Trump case, and then um, I have some notes here about viewpoint discrimination is an issue under the First Amendment. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so if you post something, whether it's on your Facebook account or your Twitter account or some social media account, and you're using that account in furtherance of your official position as an elected mm -hmm. official, um, you're not going to be able to censor or block or delete comments by people who disagree with you. Essentially, what you've done by engaging in a discussion about public or official business on your social media account is you've created a public forum. Mm. And we can't discriminate against people simply because they disagree with us. Think about it in terms of someone who appears at a city council meeting or a village board meeting. Um, we often have people appear that disagree with the opinions or positions taken by the elected officials, but they have a right to speak. We can't say, well, no, you disagree with us, so you can't talk about that zoning change or you can't talk about the tax increase we're thinking about. No, no. You have to let people speak because that's protected by the First Amendment. Now, there are, of course, Megan, limits on that. Uh, you can mm -hmm. certainly preclude someone who tries to incite violence or who engages in obscenity or who tries to use uh, to hijack a public official's social media account to advertise for their business, something like that. So if it's unprotected speech, uh, that's a different story. But if it's simply a form of viewpoint discrimination, uh, you cannot discriminate uh, once you use your social media account to talk about official business. So the and distinction think, there, oh, sorry, Megan, can yeah. I interrupt? Yes. So the distinction there, Bob, it sounds like is really the, the, the key of that is, is making sure that you're not using your personal social media account for um, policy or political purposes. So you're not sharing information in, in, a, in an official capacity. So I think um, on Facebook, on Twitter, you see a lot of... Um, so-and-so for Congress or so-and-so for elected office type of accounts. Um, if you're keeping them separate, then your private social media account, you can you still have the authority as an individual to um, hide comments, block things, as long as you're keeping it truly separate. 
Yeah, as long as it's your personal account, you don't forfeit the ability to have a personal Facebook account with limited users uh, or uh, that's perfectly okay. The mere fact that you're elected doesn't change it. But uh, as the court said in the Trump case, once you open up the interactive features of your account to the public at large, you're not allowed to censor people uh, simply because they express views to which you disagree. Makes sense. So I think a knee-jerk reaction to all of this, especially if I was putting myself in the shoes of an elected official, would be to say, well, forget it. I don't want to deal with this and, and to just not have a social media page or anything like that. And, and I think that would be unfortunate because this is a, a great way to stay connected and we need to embrace the new mediums. So, Stephanie, how can municipalities harness the power of social media to create effective communication pieces? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it really goes back to the purpose of why we even have social media as a part of our lives. And social media was really created to keep people connected and Mm. to enhance community, right? Like social media was not created as a platform to sell your products or your services. It was not created as platforms for influencers, for, you know, shameless self-promotion at all hours of the day that happens on social media, but it's not the pure in what social media is for. And even when you think about those more promotional and marketing tactics that are being used, those really can only occur when an organization or a person like an elected official, for instance, has a community of followers. And so the best way to be effective on social media is to remember that and to not just share information in a one-sided way, like, hey, your garbage pickup is changing because of the holiday, or you're not allowed to put lawn signs out in our community or things of that nature. You, you want to create communication that encourages engagement so that people can have a conversation there. And you also want to remember when using social media effectively to not repeat what's already existing somewhere else on your social media channels because people use social media for specific purposes. Some of those are finding information but others are for entertainment and to fight boredom and also for surveillance purposes. They just want to know what's going on and kind of like get the pulse on different topics and different people. And engagement is really what drives all of those uses for us. So um, communities and elected officials should really keep that in mind with the type of content that they're putting out. I heard a statistic, which I'm going to butcher, um, that a lot of people today aren't getting their news from uh, actual news sources, but are getting it from Facebook and from tweets and from social, uh, other social media platforms. And I would think that they would probably hold elected officials, even at the local and county level, um, to a higher standard and, and think that their, whatever they're posting is factual. Right, what, what is your experience with that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you're making the choice to follow your community or elected officials online, you're 
sort of implying that you have a level of trust with that person or with that community. We do know that people do what's called hate following and, you know, they follow people who they really dislike just so that they can be an online troll. But that is certainly not the majority of activity on social media. So it's a safe bet to assume that people are following elected officials because they trust them and they view them as an expert in leading the community that they're a part of. So it is really important that elected officials and communities are only sharing what they know is accurate and timely and appropriate. And, and Megan, if I could just amplify that point for a minute. Um, sure. One of the things that I think elected officials should keep in mind is that when they speak on their social media outlet, um, the public may not necessarily understand the difference between one individual elected official's point of view or opinion and the position of the village or the city or the county uh, generally. Um, we know uh, because we interact with uh, bodies of local government regularly that there are often differences of opinion among various elected officials. The public may not understand whether that elected official is speaking on their own behalf for the village board as a whole. Um, I think when sensitive uh, inquiries come, uh, things like, for example, uh, excessive force by police officers, uh, that's a hot topic right now, or uh, pursuits. Uh, we've seen a lot of policy development in the area of when is a police pursuit uh, appropriate or not appropriate. One of the things the elected official should consider is routing those types of inquiries to staff. Uh, it might be that the police chief or the public information officer or the manager of the jurisdiction is better able to address the municipality's policy on that than an elected official who may or may not get it entirely correct. And Christina, I think something that you and I have talked about, when there's an emergency, uh, whether it's a flood, a pandemic, tornado, whatever it may be, it's very important to have accurate information. And that means it may be important to speak with a single voice, right? Correct. And the consistency of how the, of the information, uh, which is sometimes a challenge when you're dealing with an emergency. If you have multiple um, individuals involving in putting out public information and there's a slight variation or an inconsistency in what someone might be posting or sharing, um, again, well-intentioned, but just maybe slightly misinformed, that does create a, um, it does create confusion in an emergency situation, which is something we want to avoid with the public, especially. Stephanie, what effective strategies have you seen as more offices uh, and more environments move to remote workplaces with continuing to connect with employees, continuing to provide messages to elected officials, residents, and other key players? Yeah, this is an area that I've done a fair amount of research in even before we were forced to work remotely. Um, and it's very interesting. And especially right now during this virtual time, the most effective strategies from organization to employees to help connect with employees are strategies that are just simple and nice. And I think that we kind of forget the importance of being kind to each other during this time because we are all at home and 
that has a lot of challenges and those challenges look very different for all of us. It's not just the parent student that's doing e-learning who's facing challenges or someone who lives in a multi-generational household. I'm a dog mom. It's just me and my dog in the house. And some days I think that he can be more challenging when I am on a Zoom meeting than what I imagine a toddler to be, you know, because I've been at home and he just doesn't understand work time versus snuggle time. So to him, it's very confusing when I'm on Zoom and he's trying to bang the door open and people are like, what is that noise? And then here comes my little Yorkie poo pouncing into the room. So, you know, understanding and just kind of embracing that everyone is having time is the best way to just relax everyone and connect with people, maybe sharing a funny story of like, you know, your Zoom background versus reality and you turn the camera to piles of laundry next to you or you know a huge mess or whatever and just getting everyone to kind of laugh and break the ice helps a lot um and I also think that you know when we're having meetings just talking to people as we would in the office and remembering to prioritize those informal communication practices like asking how someone's weekend was or just asking them how it's going really does a lot for keeping people engaged in the work that they're doing and connecting between employers and employees. Uh, Something else you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about uh, offline, which really resonated with me, was that if you're going to have a Zoom meeting, have an agenda. Um, I know that I am Zoomed out these days. I'm sick to death of it. Um, The only benefit is I don't have to wear pants. But even that's no longer uh, such a benefit these days. Um, but it doesn't look like Zoom meetings are going away anytime soon, as long as this virus is still wreaking havoc. Um, you mentioned the importance of having an agenda, because if we don't have an agenda, is this meeting really necessary? Could it have been an email? I love that. Why is that so important? I think it's important because we have realized how easy it is to Zoom but we're forgetting how often we're actually doing it. So Mm. it's kind of like become our instinct to just be like, oh, let's just get on a Zoom instead of adding four people to an email. And Mm -hmm. although there are definite benefits to hopping on a call, it can also make things take significantly longer than they need to. And just getting on everyone's schedule can take way longer than sending an email. And Mm -hmm. we used to kind of have email fatigue and in many ways we still do, but like you're saying now we've also added zoom fatigue. And so in some ways our email load has maybe gotten a little bit lighter because it's being replaced with a heavier schedule of meetings. And so when you look at that schedule of meetings, it's like, okay, what is really absolutely necessary here? Can we, have a preliminary email chain and then later on have a meeting? Or is it possible to just do all of this via email, especially if it's only a couple of questions where people are just going to have to, you know, give a direct answer. Yes, I'm in favor of something. No, I'm not. And then they're reasoning. There's no need to be on a Zoom for something like that. 
And I think a lot of organizations want to look like they're embracing these challenging times and they're and they're moving forward with current technology and they're not going to miss a beat. I was invited to attend a virtual conference um, this this past week and it was very inexpensive and I had some mild interest in doing it. And I, I'm not going to lie, I paid about 50% attention to the, these meetings that I were in. Whereas if I had been in person attending, I would have paid a lot more attention. I wouldn't have had the distraction of everything else. I mean, I answered calls that were coming into my office while this was happening. So I think it's a double-edged sword. I think uh, it's great that we can still go forward with business as usual, but I think we need to be mindful of, like you said, all of the other things that are happening outside of the Zoom meetings and is it really necessary? Could, instead of, you know, this was a, some software that we have at work, the conference that I was on, I probably would have benefited from um, some pre-recorded module that, I, that would take 10 minutes versus, you know, an hour and a half presentation that I only paid 50% attention to. And, and Megan, I think that can also be said for key elements of training. Um, mm. We know that some jurisdictions are just buying an off-the-shelf pre-recorded training session that employees can listen to at their leisure but I fear the message isn't really getting through. Um, mm. uh, I was just doing training on Friday and I'll be back tomorrow in a jurisdiction about effective performance appraisals and some of the legal aspects. And I said to the jurisdiction, would you like me to do this via Zoom? And they said, no, we'd really like you to be there. Uh, we think there'll be greater engagement that way. And I think they were right. It's, uh, we had a tremendous session on Friday uh, and I'm hoping we'll have another good couple of sessions tomorrow. But I think we're all getting a little bit tired of Zoom. It was nice in March and April. It was something new. But okay, now it's time where, we, where it's safe to do so to get back in front of people. I think that's a, that's a good point, Bob. And I also think the like everything else with communication, there's a balance, right? We talk a lot even in supervisory training about uh, styles of communication and what the appropriate situation is and when email is the right form or when it's more appropriate to pick up a phone or just have an in-person discussion. And I think these virtual meeting platforms kind of are all part of that process. There's certainly a time and a place and I foresee us using it more in the future than we probably ever did before COVID. Um, but there is still a benefit to some of that human interaction. And of course, we have to deal with all the social distancing and, and CDC guidelines for COVID. But um, if it can be done in person and you can still maintain social distancing and still follow the guidelines, I think it's uh, important to still have that human interaction. Right. Um, Megan and Christina, I want to just come back, if I could, to where we started about social media, because there were a couple of things I wanted to be sure to mention to the extent that an elected official might be listening to this podcast and thinking about how it impacts their social media postings or tweets, okay? Sure, perfect. And I'll try to be quick about this. First, um, again, when you're engaging in the discussion about official or public business on your personal social media account, not only do we have to be cognizant of viewpoint discrimination and the fact that we've converted it into a public forum, but also uh, our posts and our tweets uh, as elected officials now are going to be covered by the Local Records Act. Uh, and they may also be susceptible to disclosure under the Illinois, Illinois Freedom of Information Act. So just a couple of quick pointers. Um, the other thing I want to just caution 
uh, elected officials and public officials, village managers uh, and other professionals who might uh, use the uh, jurisdiction's social media platform uh, to post is be careful about retweets, uh, particularly if they contain offensive comment or if they're inaccurate. I think some of us may remember when Trump retweeted a, a video uh, of someone riding in a golf cart. I believe it was in the villages in central Florida. And if you actually played the video, I believe it was the driver of the golf cart uh, raised his fist and said something about white power. Uh, Very offensive, obviously, to some people. And Trump claimed that he didn't watch the entire video and didn't know it was on there and tried to distance himself from it. Um, In the training that we did the other day for Crest Hill, We talked about someone who um, retweeted a quote from Abe Lincoln uh, that uh, you cannot help the poor by destroying the rich. You cannot strengthen the weak by weakening the strong. Kind of an interesting quote, particularly in this day and age. Right. The problem is Lincoln didn't say it. Uh, And a state senator uh, posted that on his social media account. And because he didn't check it out ahead of time, he lost credibility. Uh, with the voters and the public at large. So just a couple of things to keep in mind. Well, thanks, Bob. I think that's uh, very important. And I know that I enjoyed having you present before our board. And there were um, we had a, a very engaged board and asked a lot of great questions. So um, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they would like to share this uh, message with their elected officials? Have you present to their boards? Sure. I've done this now for a couple of different boards, uh, and I'd be happy to visit with any of your listeners if they would like me to consider that for them. They can call me at the firm at 847-378-7703. They can send an email to me, rsmith at cbslawyers.com. And if they want, they can follow me on Twitter at rjslegal. Wow. I didn't even know you were on Twitter. That's so advanced. That's <laughs> I don't even know how Twitter works, but I... Don't hold me accountable for that. Uh, and, and Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us as well. Uh, you provide us um, really great insight into communication strategies and things to keep in mind. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you or if they'd like more information on effective communication strategies, how can you be reached? I can be reached via email. My inbox is always open, especially now that I don't really have an, a physical office door for office hours. So email is the best way. And my email is stephasmith1 at gmail.com. But they can also connect with me on LinkedIn and get in touch with me that way. Okay, great. And I'll put a plug to both of uh, your contacts in the body of our podcast. And if our listeners have anything they want to say, you you know we're here. Send us a recorded voice message we can play or join us on a future podcast. You can always connect with us through the website, uh, ipelra.org, and, of course, on Twitter at I-P-E-L-R-A. Support IPELRA by becoming a member. We are dedicated to providing training and resources to HR and labor professionals and local government. As I mentioned earlier, next week we have Heidi Voorhees uh, from GovHR on the program. Um, She'll be talking more about the need for organizational analysis and why that's important. I'm Megan Falera. And I'm Christina White. And this has been Real Time with IPELRA. Thanks so much for joining us.